We are right at 9.30 on the button, which is unusual for us, but we're going to uh, break the norm and start on time. Maybe if we do this a couple times in a row, people will figure out where... No, they won't. <laughs> no, they won't. Yes, that's okay. Well, let's pray as people make their way in. We'll pray and get started with angelology today. Lord, thank you for the chance to be together with your people. I am eager and excited to get a chance just to fellowship around the word. Lord, it is a delight to know you, to belong to you, and it is a joy to study your word. This is a rich treasure that you have bestowed upon your people. You've revealed who you are. You've told us about who we are and, and what's going on in this world, and it is truly a gift uh, to be able to read and understand your word. And Lord, even as we think about how through history there's been times where your word has been scarce. There's been times where people couldn't read it in their own language. There's been times where um, it was kept under lock and key. And I'm thankful that we have just an ease of access to the truth. And I pray that today as we study it, that we would be good stewards of this treasure, um, that we would seek to know and believe and obey your word. Amen. Okay, so angelology, you don't have to be a linguist to understand what angelology is about, but it is very simply the study of angels. And you might say, okay, we've just been doing soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. We've been talking about the sovereignty of God, truths like justification and election and all these other things. And, and you might think, well, angelology is, is I, I get why you know, studying Christ is important and studying salvation is important. I understand why bibliology is important, but... Angels, is it really worth spending time on? Are we just going to cover this and you know, combine it with some other things? And Well, we're actually going to take three weeks to discuss angelology, and that might seem like a lot to you. Um, but today I'm going to be offering you an introduction and an overview of the doctrine of angels. Next week, uh, Scott Huffman is going to be zooming in specifically on Satan, who he is, what his role in the world is, what his future is. And then on the following week, I'm going to be talking about fallen angels, demonology. Uh, what are fallen angels? What are demons? What is their activity in the world? How should we as Christians think and engage on that battlefront? So today is angelology, an introduction, an overview. Um, what should we think about angels? We need to understand what are they? What is their purpose? And does it really matter if we as Christians have a good grasp on this doctrine? Again, this might be something you haven't really studied, but I think that it does matter for a few reasons. Number one, the Bible talks a lot about angels, so we want to understand the Bible, um, which means we need to understand what angels are and how they fit into to God's plans. Um, secondly, they feature into God's plan for his creation. They are key members on the chessboard, if you, if you would put it that way, of what God is doing throughout history. And so it's valuable for us to understand that because we want to better understand God's glorious works. And God deserves glory for everything he does, including his creation of use of angelic creatures. Um, third reason I think it's valuable for us to study angels is we want to be on guard against deception. And... Going all the way back to the times in the New Testament, there has been false teaching about angels and what place they have in the Christian life, and we want to be on guard against that. And then lastly, we can actually learn a thing or two from angels that will impact our own spiritual growth. Um, and we'll kind of circle back to some of these at the very end, but I, I just wanted to set up front that we think it is worth our time to study what the Bible has to say about angels. So what are angels? Well, sadly, I think that most people's view, many people's view, and this is definitely true outside the church, but sometimes true inside the church, 
is that their understanding of angels boils down to sentimental things or superstitious things. Uh, maybe you've seen the Precious Moments figurines, and that's kind of your mental image of what an angel is. Or maybe you think of lawn ornaments or Christmas decorations. Um, too often we have sort of a cartoonish view of what angels are. I mean, it's not something that's taken from Scripture. Sometimes Hollywood tries to help us, and this is one of my favorite movies. It's a great movie. Oh, you guys are seeing my notes, aren't you? Wow, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I don't know how to use PowerPoint. We're going to start from the beginning. Hey, there we go. Now you can see the picture's bigger. I wondered why you guys were watching the screen so carefully. I was like, wow, these pictures must be good. So George Bailey has a daughter who goes to school, and her teacher says that every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Great movie, terrible theology, okay? Um, but it just shows you the, the diverse types of views that people have and the ideas that are floating around out there about angels. Um, and we could go on and on with lots of um, illustrations of this. Um, maybe you've heard someone say um, around the time of a loved one's death, well, God just got another angel. And they have this idea that angels are, you know, people who have died and gone on to heaven. And they get their harp and they get their wings. And, and that's sort of a, a sentimental view. Um, but that comes from, again, kind of a, a cultural, cartoonish view of reality. It does not come from the Bible. So I'm, I like lists. And my, my outline today is going to be very simple. It's 12 things you need to know about angels. Maybe you guys like lists as well. You know, like 12 tips on you know, making sure your turkey turns out good for Thanksgiving or, you know, things like that. But I'm going to give you 12 things you need to know about angels. And the first, number one, is that they are created by God. And that might seem basic. It might seem fairly simplistic to say that angels are created by God. But it's important because it puts them in a category called creature. And Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those are referring to spiritual beings that have great power. Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. Angels were created by God. They're created by God, and that's important. That means they actually, though they're far different than us, they have something very important in common with us, that they belong in the creature category like we do created by God. They are not infinite. They are not pre-existent. They are not on the same level as God. They're not lesser gods in the same category as God. God stands alone. He is holy and unique as the only God, the only one who has existed since eternity past. And he created all things through Christ, including the angels. Secondly, angels are spiritual beings. They are spirits. And that means that they don't have a body like Hours, and they are not normally visible uh, to the human eye. Um, we see this in 2 Kings chapter 6. I love this story. Elisha has a servant, and there is a foreign king and his army who have been trying to pin down um, God's people. And somehow, God's people are always one step ahead of them. And that king thinks that somebody in his cabinet is leaking information. And they say, no, 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 it's none of us. We're on your side. It's just that there's this prophet um, of the Lord in the land, and he always tells the king of Israel your plans. And so they go, set out to go capture Elisha. 
And it says, When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, there's a spiritual reality that there, were, there was an angelic host, an army of these spiritual beings that were there for the protection of Elisha and his servant, but they couldn't see it. Elisha knew they were there by faith. He believed, but the servant didn't know, and so he asked if God would give his servant a glimpse into reality, a fuller reality, something that was there, but under normal circumstances, we can't see it. So angels are spiritual beings that we typically are not able to see with the human eye. They're also spiritual beings in the sense that they are not given in marriage. There's no procreation. Jesus um, speaks of this in Matthew 22. He says, in the resurrection, therefore, the seven, who, well, this is the question, actually, that Jesus is being asked they asked of a, an individual who was married um, seven times, this woman, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For they all had her as a wife. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So they are spiritual beings. They don't have a, a physical body the same way we do. They're not normally visible. They're not given in marriage. There's no procreation. Third, angels possess intellectual and moral capabilities. They're moral creatures. They, are, they make moral decisions, um, and they're highly intelligent. We see this in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, says that if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... He kind of goes on to make an argument about God's judgment of us. But the point I want to draw out from that is that the angels sinned. They made a decision that was contrary to God's law, and they were judged for it. They are moral creatures with moral capability. They make moral decisions, commit moral actions that have consequences. God judges them. First uh, Peter 1.12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving. This is speaking of prophets in the Old Testament. They were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So he's talking about the gospel, a fuller understanding of God's redemptive plan, this good news that's been preached, and how the prophets laid the groundwork for this. And he says of this good news, the things that have been announced, he says that these are things into which angels long to look. So this speaks to their intellectual um, ability that they are trying to get their mind around the gospel of grace. It blows their mind because they know who God is. They dwell in his presence. They've been watching human history, and they're shocked that God would save anyone. Um, and, and they're trying to get their mind around this gospel of grace. They long to look into it, and they long to have a deeper understanding of God's plan of redemption. It fascinates them, and they are studying out the gospel century after century. Um, longing to look more deeply into it. Uh, fourth, angels cannot experience redemption. 
And this, this is connected to uh, the point number three, that they possess moral capabilities. Um, we'll talk more about this in the next two weeks as we discuss Satan and the fallen angels. But there was a time where there was a great spiritual rebellion, and many of the angels fell. And those angels, that, that was a one-way door. There is no forgiveness for them. There is no salvation for them. There is no atonement for the sin of the angels. And there are no redeemed angels. Um, again, to point us back to 2 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 1, um, the angels who sinned were cast into hell, committed um, to gloomy darkness until judgment. Um, that is a simple fact. They failed, and there's judgment. Um, you say, why is this? Why is it that the angels can't experience salvation and we can? Well, we have to understand the difference between us and angels is angels are not made in God's image. That's never said of them. Uh, we alone are made in God's image. And God saves those made in his image, but he does not offer salvation to the angels. Secondly, Jesus did not become an angel to redeem angels. Jesus became a man to save men. Jesus is the second Adam, not the second angel. So there must be representation. There must be substitution. If there is going to be atonement made so that redemption can happen, and that's simply not available to the angels. And you say, well, what about the angels who didn't fall? Does that mean that they get the glory for their own holiness and salvation? No. Um, they are still recipients of grace because those holy angels are often referred to as the elect angels. So you say, why did some angels not fall? Why did some angels do the right thing? And we still have to go back at the end of the day and say, well, because God sovereignly appointed them in his gracious plan to remain holy. So even they have to recognize that they are recipients of God's electing grace. So even though there's not redeeming grace at work in them, there is still electing grace. So there's something we have in common there, but there's differences as well. But the angels cannot experience redemption. Fifth, and this is where we'll spend a little more time, um, what is their purpose for existing? Why did God create angels? Well, their purpose for existing is to serve God. They are called ministering spirits, uh, but their purpose for existing is to serve him. Um, that's why they exist. We can look at how they serve God, and this, this could be its own entire lesson. We'll just skate through this very rapidly. But obviously they exist to worship God. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees these angelic creatures singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They literally spend their days praising God because his glory deserves it. And their purpose for existence is to magnify the glory of God. Revelation chapter 4, we see this, this picture of an angels who are surrounding the throne, worshiping um, Christ, giving him glory. So they exist to worship God. They exist, secondly, as his messengers. In fact, the, the Hebrew word malach and the Greek word angelos mean messenger. In fact, sometimes those words are used to refer to things, people who, that aren't angels. Sometimes men are called um, angelos. They're called messengers. Um, there's times where we see the preexistent Son of God referred to as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Sometimes God sends an angel as his messenger. Sometimes he acts as his own messenger. 
Uh, but angels serve often as messengers. We see this in Genesis, and we see this in Revelation and everywhere in between. Whether it's um, the angels going uh, into Sodom and announcing the lot that he needs to flee, you know, serving as a messenger. Whether it's uh, the angel appearing to Joseph and Mary and telling them about this baby that's to be born. And, and there's many other instances as well. But angel simply means messenger. And they often serve God by carrying messages for him. They also serve by protecting the saints. Uh, Psalm 91 um, is a passage that talks about how God will not let his, his holy ones fall and stumble. He will send his angels lest they dash their foot against a stone. There's an element of protection that angels often fulfill that, uh, that duty. And like we already saw in 2 Kings 6, there's that whole army surrounding Elisha and his servant protecting them. So angels have a protective role. Um, in addition to that, we see that angels are often used as instruments of judgment. In Revelation chapter 9, we see there's four angels prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year, and they're released to kill a third of mankind. So angels can be used by God as instruments of his judgment. And these are not the little cherubs that you see, you know, the cute lawn ornaments. This is something that is fearful and something that is far different. These are magnificent, powerful, spiritual creatures that are enabled um, by God to carry out um, drastic acts of judgment. So they serve God in that way. They also serve in the sense of spiritual warfare. Jude 9 talks about Michael, the archangel, disputing with Satan over the body of Moses, that there's conflict there. In Revelation chapter 12, <clears throat> we see that the angels make war against the dragon and, and those who follow him. So they are involved in a spiritual war. They're often called... Um, uh, the hosts of heaven. And that word host is, is a military term. The armies of heaven. And God is their commander and he sends them to do his bidding. So angels serve God by participating in spiritual warfare. Angels also serve God by participating in ministries of encouragement. In 1 Kings chapter 19, we have the prophet Elijah. And he is exhausted, he's depressed, he's in the wilderness, he wants to die. And he asks God, he said, just take my life, I, I want to be done. And God says no, because what he does is send an angel who strengthens him, provides food for him, encourages him, and then gives him a message and says, here's what I want you to do next. It's not time for you to die. It's time for you to go anoint Hazael as king over Syria. It's time for you to anoint Elisha to be your successor. And by the way, I have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So he sends an angel to minister to Elijah, to encourage him, even provide food for him, and to give him a message. Um, in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, we find that Jesus goes out into the wilderness, and he's fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He's being tempted by Satan, and it says the angels were ministering to him. Interesting. Also in Luke chapter 22, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's feeling the weight and the agony of knowing what's about to happen with his crucifixion. And as he prays, his disciples fall asleep. They're not ministering to him. They're not encouraging him. But it says an angel of the Lord came and ministered to Jesus in Luke chapter 22, 43. Um, Hebrews 1, 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So angels may serve God by being vessels of encouragement, ministering uh, on his behalf. And then finally, we see angels are involved in gathering the elect. In Matthew 24, we see that he sends out his angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. 
Luke chapter 16 says that when the poor man Lazarus died, that the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. So, and we could go on. There's probably more examples. This is a sample. Um, but the purpose for angels existing is to serve God. They are his servants who do his bidding in a number of ways in order to glorify him. That is why God created them. That is what they exist for. And we see them active in all of these ways throughout Scripture. And I think this is sort of the common denominator that ties all of these different activities uh, together. The sixth reason, or sixth thing you need to know about angels, is that they appear to have rank and class. Um, we see this in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. There's reference to the voice of an archangel. An archangel, again, this is sort of a military term. This is someone who ranks above the others. Um, we see references to different types of spiritual creatures in Scripture. We see the cherubim, and we've talked about this in our series through Exodus. The cherubim are stationed at the gate to the Garden of Eden to guard the way. They have a protective duty. They seem to have a, a certain job description there. The seraphim, a different type of angelic creature, these are the ones that we see in Isaiah 6 who perpetually worship around the throne. So there seems to be some sort of taxonomy, an organization of sorts, where there's rank and class with different types of angels and different ranks within uh, the angelic uh, class. Um, but they appear to be organized in that sense. Uh, seventh, angels are greater in power than humans. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2. Speaking of Christ... The, the author of Hebrews says, it has been testified somewhere, he's quoting Psalms here, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, speaking now of Jesus, becoming a man, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, in his humility, the one who created the angels, the one who ranks over them, the one that they're supposed to serve and taking on flesh, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Lower than the angels in the sense of, his, of, of the, the glory and the power that he exercised and displayed, he was made lower than them. What is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? There is a weakness and a frailty to human nature. And the angels are far greater than that in terms of their power uh, and ability. In Luke chapter 2, verse 9, we see the greatness of angels. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds out in the field. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel had to tell them, fear not. It's a terrifying thing to behold these angelic creatures because they're far greater than us in glory. We see their power displayed in Genesis 19 in the story of of Sodom and Gomorrah as these angels came in and stayed with Lot. Um, these corrupt men reached out their hands um, and they're trying to seize these men and, and abuse them. And they're trying to tear down Lot's door and drag Lot out the door because Lot's harboring these angelic messengers. But it says these two men, these angels, reached out their hands and they grab Lot, they bring him into the house, shut the door. And notice what they do. These angels struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. I can't do that, and neither can you, but apparently the angels can. So they are greater in power than humans. However, and here's what's amazing, despite the fact that they're greater in power than humans, they're destined to be judged by humans. 
1 Corinthians 6.3 says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Again, as those who bear the image of God, as those, uh, those of us who are believers who've been redeemed by God's grace, there is a resurrection and a glorification coming for us. And we are going to be assigned various ranks in the kingdom of God. And there's going to be Christians, frail humans who have been redeemed, glorified, who will judge and rank over the angels. That's a pretty amazing thing. Um, Here's another thing that I think that often Christians haven't contemplated this. Angels are cosmic spectators in God's divine drama of redemption. Think about that. One of the reasons God created the, the heavenly host is so that there would be people in the stands, so to speak, as God displayed his power and his glory in all of his works throughout history. They're watching. They're seeing. Ephesians chapter 3 references this. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that the church, or so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? That God is seeking through the church to make known his wisdom, to show off so that the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places see, and so that they have more reason to marvel and worship and glory. Many people think there's a reference to this in 1 Corinthians when, when Paul's giving instruction for how the women in the church are to even dress and conduct themselves. He says, for the sake of the angels. And many times people will take that phrase and connect it to this text and say, listen, the angels are watching church today. They're seeing what's happening in the church And what they should see is something that causes them to glorify God. What they shouldn't see is a people who are walking in the flesh and seeking their own glory and minimizing the glory of God. That would grieve the angels. It would disappoint them because they're eager to cheer on the purposes of God and rejoice in in the, the fruit that is happening because of his grace. So angels are cosmic spectators in God's divine drama. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16, I think, makes reference to this, that Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The angels watched as Jesus died, and the angels watched as Jesus rose again. They saw it. Revelation 5.11 talks about how the angels worship him for what he's done. In verse 12, they cry out with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels don't only worship God for his abstract character. They don't only worship God for the sheer radiance of his glory, although they do. They also worship him specifically for what he has done here in this world. They worship Christ because he's the lamb who was slain, and it's because of that that he's worthy to receive all of this honor and glory and blessing. So they are cosmic spectators in God's divine drama. Number 10, angels must never be worshipped or sought after. They must never be worshipped or sought after. Yes, they are glorious, they are powerful, they are great. They um, uh, have been with God since the early days of creation, but they must never be worshipped or sought after. 
Revelation 22, verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. The angels don't want you to pray to them. The angels don't want you to worship them. The angels don't want you to focus on them. They want you to worship God. They're like, listen, we're far more like you than we are like God. Worship him. Angels must never be worshipped. While angels often deliver messages in Scripture, I think this is um, important. You never find an example in Scripture of someone seeking an angel or praying to an angel or seeking revelation from an angel. Anytime an angel shows up to deliver a message, it's almost always unsolicited. It's almost always a surprise. And that's why the angels always have to tell them, fear not, I'm here to bring you good news. I'm not here to end your life because everyone's always shocked and afraid. Um, And in the rare events where an angel does seem to be um, responding to perhaps the prayer of of, of a human, that, that person is seeking God. And God answers their prayer by revealing something through an angel. So we're not to seek angels, we're not to worship them. We seek God and we worship God. In addition, angels are not necessary for spiritual life or for communion with God. Jesus is our mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We read in Colossians that there was false teaching plaguing the early church, that, that God was too far above and we were too far below, and so God would sort of reveal himself to an angel who would pass it down to an angel, who would pass it down to an angel, who would pass it down to an angel, and we could interact with that first angel and it would sort of go up the chain of dominoes. That's false teaching. Um, we don't need an angel to represent us to God. We don't need to go through an angel. We can speak directly to God through our mediator, Jesus Christ, who is God. So angels are not necessary for spiritual life or communion with God. Um, if you've never seen an angel, if you've never heard an angel speak, you are in good company with 99.999% of all believers who have ever lived because we don't actually need them. We see them pop up in, in some very specific places in biblical history. But it's not something we need as Christians because we have Scripture, we have the Holy Spirit, we have Christ, um, and they've played a part in, in some of this being revealed. I mean, much of Revelation is an angel relaying things to, to John. But we don't need them in our day-to-day life for spiritual life or communion with God. We have Christ, and he is sufficient. Eleventh, angels must never be trusted above Scripture. Um, I love what Paul says in Galatians. He's pretty serious about the purity of the gospel. In verse 8, he says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Um, Mormonism started off with a man who claimed to have received special revelation from an angel. The problem is what he claimed to have heard from an angel contradicted scripture, which means according to Galatians 1, If he saw an angel, that angel is to be cursed, to be damned, to an eternal judgment in hell. That's serious, strong language. We are never to trust an angel over and above Scripture. 2 Corinthians 11.13 says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
We can trust scripture. You can't always trust a spiritual being revealing himself and relaying something to you. Uh, So we have to be careful about that. Angels must never be trusted above scripture. And then finally, angels may have an unexpected or hidden presence in the world. Um, a fascinating verse that many of you are aware of in Hebrews 13:2. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What this means is that there may be angels sent to do God's bidding here in this earth, and you might not realize it. You might not know. Some of you have stories. I have stories, and I've heard stories. We don't know for sure what that was, but sometimes we go, Lord, how did that happen? Who knows? Perhaps it was God sending an angel to minister to his people and to accomplish his plans. And if that's the case, we shouldn't geek out over the fact that maybe that was an angel. We should marvel at God and consider that in his providence, in his sovereign ruling over his universe, if he wants to, he can send an angel to get something done because they serve him. And there's an interesting note here about in light of that, we should show hospitality. You never know who it is that you just picked up as a hitchhiker on K-10. You never know. So they may have an unexpected hidden presence in the world. It's possible. So a couple concluding remarks, and we'll get done a few minutes early today. Um, Again, I I talked at the beginning of this lesson how I do think it's important for us to biblically understand angelology. It does matter that we rightly understand what Scripture teaches about angels. And here's, I think, the practical takeaway for us. Number one, we ought to reject superstition and sentimentalism. We don't want to be superstitious. We don't want to give angels more attention or more credit than they are due. And we don't want to have beliefs about angels that are shaped by uh, culture rather than shaped by scripture. So reject superstition and also reject sentimentalism. We don't want to have sort of a naive cartoonish view of the spiritual realm. We want to take it seriously and understand it biblically. Secondly, we want to reject anti-supernaturalism. Some people would scoff at the idea that there's this invisible realm and there's these powerful beings created by God that have great power and are at work in the world today, both for good and for evil. Reject anti-supernaturalism. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real and it's not of great impact in the world we live in. So studying this doctrine in Scripture, studying what Scripture teaches about angels, helps us. Um, to reject anti-supernaturalism, that, that attitude that says the things I can see and touch and feel, that's real, and the rest is sort of all kind of mythology. Third, practically, we need to seek the God that the angels serve, not seek the angels. Again, this is something we need to be biblically informed by, but it is possible to have an unhealthy obsession or fixation on spiritual beings. On the angels. And I think there's a danger there. We're opening ourselves up to deception if we do that. Um, Seek the God that the angels serve. Don't seek the angels. Fourth, we ought to rejoice in the unique privilege of bearing God's image and receiving his redeeming grace. The angels can't claim that. They're not made in God's image and they don't get to receive redemptive grace. They don't know what it feels like to be forgiven. They don't know what it feels like to be thankful for the cross in a personal sense. We do, and we ought to rejoice in that unique privilege that we have been made in the image of God and that we are recipients of his redeeming grace. You know, the angels would look upon us. They long to look into this. 
And if they see us not worshiping Christ for the cross, if they see us not rejoicing on our own salvation, they would say, wow, you guys are missing out because I wish I could worship God for, for that. They long to look into this. We ought to not neglect that. And then fifth, I want to encourage you this morning, resolve to follow the holy angel's example in worshiping, serving, and glorifying God. If these great and glorious creatures, these immortal beings created by God who have witnessed all of human history, who have been in the very presence of God in the throne room, if they worship him, serve him, and dedicate their whole existence to glorifying God, shouldn't we as well? How much more should we as those who've been blessed with being bearers of his image? There are no angels who who are said to be in Christ, like we are. We are in Christ, united with him through faith. Angels don't get that. We do. We ought to follow their example in terms of worshiping, serving, and glorifying God with everything we have. We exist to glorify God. God does not exist to improve our lives or to give us what we need. We exist for him. And that should shape how we live, how we think, how we worship Um, all of it. So I think those are some practical takeaways. But that is a flyby overview and introduction to the doctrine of angels. And we focused today specifically on the holy angels. Next week, uh, Scott's going to talk to us about Satan, the devil. And then the following week, we will address um, sort of the larger category of the fallen angels, those who fell with Satan and rebelled against God, um, and sort of discuss some of the, the biblical truths that we need to understand regarding them. But let's pray, and we'll be done, and we'll be back here in about 23 minutes for corporate worship. So you have time to get coffee, you have time to fellowship, and we have time to chat more about angels if you like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and the clarity with which it speaks of things that are eternal and spiritual. And Lord, while we cannot see with our eyes many of these realities, we know we must believe them because your word says that they're true. I pray that you would help us to think biblically regarding the angelic creatures. We thank you, Lord, for how you have used them throughout history to reveal yourself to your people and to intervene and to guide things towards their appointed end. We thank you, Lord, for how your angels have offered protection and encouragement to us, perhaps in ways we weren't even aware of. Um, And Lord, we look forward to that day when we can add our voices to theirs and worship the lamb who was slain, who is seated on the throne. So we pray that you'd be glorified today as we continue to seek you and to worship you. Amen.